Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Meditate on that powerful anthem for just a moment before we continue our reading in Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Choir and congregation. Uh, As we move into a time of teaching together, I want to say a word of welcome. If this is your first, second, third, or fourth Sunday, if this is still a new place for you, we really would love to know that you were here this morning. And uh, because it is Daylight Savings Weekend, uh, at 10.30, the room was a different shape than it is right now. And I imagine at like 11.30, there will be a group of folks who show up, right, Um, whose watches didn't automatically reset themselves. We are really glad uh, that you chose to be with us this morning. And we would really love to know if uh, you're new with us. And so there are these little yellow cards that are in your bulletin, your order of service. And uh, one side of it is a set of information you can share with us, a phone number, an email, a way that we can stay in contact so we can let you know things that are happening in our congregation. 
and then also on the back side of that yellow card is a section for prayer requests. And so if you uh, would like for the staff and the prayer team to be praying for anything or to celebrate, uh, about 90% of the yellow cards we receive are prayer requests. Um, that other 10% of things that we're really grateful for and blessings is also a very lovely use of that. Uh, so at the end of the service, we're going to have a time of offering and you can place those yellow cards in the offering plate when they go by and then we'll have that information. Uh, like I said, we are in the middle of, uh, well, we're at the very beginning of the season of Lent. Uh, and we're going to begin today in the book of Numbers. We're going to be in Numbers all the way up through Holy Week. Take a break for about three weeks for Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, and then Easter uh, 2, the second Sunday after Easter. And then we are going to dive back into the book of Numbers until Pentecost, which is like early June. Uh, so this is going to be a lot of Old Testament, friends. It's going to be so good. Partly because Numbers is so weird. And I love weird scripture because it often shows us things that we were unaware of before. Helps me kind of get out of ruts. But this morning, you may have noticed we did not read from the book of Numbers. We read from the book of Matthew. So I want to tell you why. Uh, Jesus' story is in so many ways the book of Numbers and really all of the wilderness journey kind of writ small in one person. And so it makes sense for us to look at Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness as a beginning point to look at the 40 years that the Israelites spend in the wilderness. Does that make sense? Let's get going. The book of Numbers is the fourth book in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. It is the fourth book of the Torah. Torah is the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Numbers is uh, what we call it because there are all kinds of census taking that happens in the book of Numbers. Counting, uh, family trees, and next Sunday we're going to talk about how to count well. Uh, the name of the book of Numbers in the Hebrew scriptures is this word right here. Uh, Bamidbar. Midbar is the language of wilderness. So in the wilderness. That's what the book of Numbers is concerned with. You may remember Exodus has like half the book. It takes place in the wilderness. All of the book of Numbers is in that space in between. And wilderness uh, in the Bible is not a place as much as it's a reality. Uh, and so I want to just pause for a moment and say to you that if you are feeling in the wilderness season, in that kind of space in between, if some old way of being in the world is starting to not make sense, starting to fall apart, and that identity that you had built up over time is just less solid. And you're not sure yet what you're becoming. You are likely in the wild places, in Bamidbar. And this is where the Israelites spend decades of their lives together. And it's where Jesus is brought into by the Spirit and then tested by the evil one for 40 days. Okay. So let me give you just a quick version of the story here. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 4, but I'm actually going to quickly read for you out of Mark's gospel, and here's why. Mark's gospel is a, a really condensed version of the Jesus story. It's the shortest gospel, it's likely the oldest gospel, and so it tells these uh, different stories of Jesus' life at a really fast clip. So here's the way that Mark talks about this early part of Jesus' story. In verse 9, it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. 
Just as he came out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved, my son, with you I am well pleased. And then immediately the spirit drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he's with the wild beasts and the angels waited on him. It's a really quick way to tell the same story that Matthew tells and that Luke tells. Uh, So here are the pieces to the story. You've got this baptism that happens uh, with John the Baptist actually takes place out of the city proper in the wilderness. And this is the space where God names Jesus as son. Now, there's all kinds of conversations we could have about whether or not Jesus knew and how much Jesus knew about his own identity. But whatever it was, at one point in the story, God speaks and says, this is who you are. My son, my beloved, I'm well pleased. And this is baptism story. And then immediately after the baptism, and isn't this just the way that it goes? Have you ever had this happen where you have this like lift of a moment? This beautiful blessing, conferring of identity, and it's this sort of high point in your life. And then immediately you find yourself in the shadow spaces. Often when I meet people, it's like their first year of marriage. You like all uncomfortably laugh because (laughs) you know. There is something about, and I don't mean that like in jest. You were at one point just you, and then it's you decided that you were going to be this other kind of family. And it takes time for that to be true. Even if you like to say promises and you make covenants with one another, uh, there are years where you are trying to make good on what you have said uh, that two have now joined to become some new kind of family. And yeah, that can feel often like a wilderness. So Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit for 40 days fasts and is famished. And at this point, the devil, Satan, the evil one comes up and begins this conversation. Okay? That's the quick version of the early part of Jesus' life. Uh, The reason I want to tell it to you in that big of a hurry at first is because what is happening in the Gospels, the way that the writers are trying to tell this story is in a really old way. Because it turns out that Jesus' experience of being named by God, given an identity, being led into the wilderness for this 40 days is is quite synonymous with Israel's story. The 40 should be the giveaway. We know that the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, which is a long time to wander, especially when it's supposed to be like a three-day journey. But I want to show you a couple of other things here that allied with the Jesus story. The Israelites were in Egypt. They were slaves. Their identity was the servants of Pharaoh, building Pharaoh, whatever Pharaoh needed at the time. That was who they were. And they had this other story from Abraham and from Isaac and from Jacob about being God's chosen people out of the book of Genesis. But that story had been forgotten. If you are in a certain kind of place for long enough, other people get to name you, get to tell you who you are. And at some point you might start to believe them. The language we use for one another is important. But at some point, Moses is spoken to by God and given this task to pull the people out of Egypt and to pull them out of that old way of being, that old identity, and giving them a new one. God shows up and says, I am Yahweh, 
the Lord your God. Who are you? Okay, fine. I'm the God of your parents, of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. I've been with you for quite a while. This is the God who is speaking and who is acting in history. And so this God pulls them out of slavery, pulls them out of Egypt. It takes like 13 chapters in the book of Exodus to do so. And then they move through what? What is the big moment where they leave Egypt and enter into the wilderness? What's in between that space? Somebody. Yeah, the sea. And what happens to the sea? It's sort of parted and then they walk through. And in that movement, it is like a birth. In fact, early scholars and teachers would say that the sea takes on this kind of birthing ritual. And they are new on the other side. You could even say that Israel goes through a kind of baptism through the sea. And God's spirit is the one leading them, right? By fire and by a cloud. And then they end up in the wilderness. And they are there for 40 days. And so you have this same pattern. God naming them as God's people. You are my children. Baptizing them into newness. The old is gone. It is washed up on the shore. All of Pharaoh's army and all of Pharaoh's power. And then they are facing an uncertain future in the wilderness together for 40 days. Jesus is baptized in the river Jordan and then is taken into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus is retelling Israel's story writ small. Now to the Jesus story, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 4. We're going to be here for just a little bit. Uh, this is the quick pattern uh, of that story. There's this identity that is given and then the wilderness is the place where that identity is tested. And then for Jesus, that identity as the son of God is then enacted in ministry. That's the pattern. The testing period does not go so well for the Israelites. In fact, at the very beginning of the story, in that moment at the sea, I just want to read for you what they say. This becomes emblematic of what happens the whole way through. Uh, This is Exodus 14. They are at the sea, not yet crossing it, because the way has not been opened for them. And Pharaoh and Pharaoh's armies get itchy and want to go grab what is being lost. And so they take off after the Israelites to capture them again. And so the Israelites start to freak out because on one side is a sea that they can't cross. And on the other side is an army coming after them. And so they begin to grumble, which is what the Israelites do in the wilderness. And this is the language that they use. They turn to Moses and they say, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you'd taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians. Can you feel that old identity still working itself out? Let us alone so that we can be who they told us we are, their servants. For it's better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses says to the people, see if you can hear Echoes of Jesus in this statement. Do not be afraid. Stand firm. And see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you only have to keep still. It is hard to own the identity that we have been given. This question is always hanging over us. Who are you? The answer to that question will dictate the kind of life that we live. 
Have you met somebody who answers this question deeply in the negative? Might be a child who's always identified as the problem in the classroom or in the home. So the identity, the answer to this question colors all the rest of their life. Sense of worth, sense of purpose, sense of action in the world. Now over and over again, we say here that your primary identity is as a child of God or the language of beloved. And what does it change if that's the thing that is most true about you? Very often in my own life, the way that this works itself out is I have bad scripts that play the same way as you have bad scripts that play in your mind that tell you things about yourself that are not true. The beauty of not being alone in this world is you have other people in your life who remind you of who you truly are, will play for you a different tape over and over again. At its best, church is that kind of place, is this expansive understanding of family so that when you show up here, you're not told over and over again the ways that you are all of the things that are untrue about yourself. Now, I will be the first to admit And also, as somebody who's standing up here as a pastor to confess, that church has for many people been the place where false tapes were actually turned up. The volume on those false stories. As a way to even maybe scare you to God, but not to woo you to God. And a way for you to maybe pretend that that's not true. But we are, in all kinds of ways, a mess. Because this world is hard and life is complicated and we don't always know what the right thing is to do. But to remind one another over and over again, this is who you are. Created in the image of God. That's the first thing that's said in the scriptures. Or when Jesus begins to preach in Matthew's gospel, blessed are you, this language of worth and of dignity and of sacred calling over and over again. That is what we are here to do with one another. And if you know this to be true, then you need to know that someone next to you does not. And you might be the one to look at them and to tell them, to call that back out from them. It is a beautiful part of our sacred calling together to help people answer this question with some precision. So Jesus is told who he is. You are my son, my beloved. I am well pleased. And so when Jesus is in the wilderness, hungry and thirsty after having not eaten for quite a long time, the devil shows up and the devil starts a conversation. And the conversation is pretty simple. It is basically an attack on that identity. It's trying to figure out if it's going to hold. Because you've got to remember that this is not the first time that someone has been called the child of God. This is the language of Israel. You are my children. You are my beloved chosen nation. And I'm your God. That's the language of covenant that the entire Old Testament is based on. That's the story that's being told over and over again. So the devil has a good track record, the evil one, of complicating that primary identity. Is this why you brought us out here? So that we could die in the wilderness? It would be better if we would go back to Egypt and be their slaves. Not able to embrace this new identity. So, the first one is about food. If you're the son of God, the voice says, that bad tape that plays getting turned up to 10, then why don't you make some food out of these stones because you're so very hungry? Basically, this challenge to prove it. And the second temptation, 
right? If you were the son of God, then toss yourself off this ledge and then God's going to save you, right? So if, if you're the son of God, then make God prove it. And when neither of those stick, then the evil one changes tax, accepts that Jesus is who Jesus has been claimed to be, but tries to get him to switch teams. Uh, basically this line, don't, don't be the son of God and you can have everything. Twice Jesus has solidified his own self-understanding and identity and then the third time Satan just cuts to the chase. This has worked in the past, but it doesn't seem to be working with this one, with this child of God. Is there something different about this Jesus? Satan is going to figure it out. In Luke's gospel, it says something a little different than in Matthew's gospel. It says in Matthew's gospel that after these testings, the devil leaves. In Luke's gospel, it says that the devil leaves until an opportune time, which is this really ominous statement because we know where this story is going. So why am I telling you this story in relationship to the story of the book of Numbers? Well, Jesus charts a path, shows us what it means to belong to God, to be claimed by God as God's child. And this is the path for Jesus. That's the path for Israel. And how many of you can relate to the bottom one? Show of hands. Right? No. But the top one, like that feels really true. What we have here is God's people, God's children, just all over the place. Back and forth, grumbling, complaining, doubting, changing course, trying to go back to Egypt over and over again. And God is shaping and being patient year after year for them to become what they have been claimed to be. And Jesus has this very clear path forward. Now, I want to talk to you about why it's so important that Jesus charts this kind of path and what it means for us. Moses says to them, like, don't be afraid. Settle down. You're about to see the deliverance of God. All you have to do is stand still. There is this little phrase that has eaten up a lot of PhD dissertations in New Testament scholarship uh, called Pistis Christu. Show of hands. Who knows about Pistis Christu? Okay. I feel, I feel confident I can say anything now. And just Ted and Ben, y'all can come talk to me after church. Uh, I remember finding out about this little phrase and the way that so much hinges off of it whenever I was studying in divinity school. So I want to share with you this compact little phrase and how complex it is as a way to understand what it means that Jesus keeps faith even when we don't and what that might do for us. So pistis Christu is a grammatically ambiguous phrase. Uh, It means faith on the left. Pistis is the language of faith or trust or loyalty. And then Christu is the name of Christ. Uh, And the relationship between these two words is unclear. Namely, whether Christ is the subject or the object of the clause. And all of my grammar teachers are just loving this and everyone else is wondering what is going on. With this comparison. Here are the two ways that you can translate this. And I want you just to take a moment. 
to feel the difference in these two phrases. Uh, the top one is likely the one you grew up with. These are both valid interpretations of Pistis Christu. Faith in Christ or the faithfulness of Christ. This phrase shows up all over the place, particularly in Paul's letters, talking about what it is that saves us. What is our deliverance? Is it our faith in Jesus? Or is it Jesus's faithfulness to God? Does everybody feel the difference in those two? It's like, okay, I'm going to show you a couple things. You don't have to stay with me on all these turns. I've got just a few places I want to show you in Romans, in Galatians, in Ephesians, and in Philippians. Uh, Romans chapter 3, 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is being attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There it is, Pistis Christu. I'm going to read it the other way for you. The righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. Galatians chapter 2, 16. Yet we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ or through faith in Jesus Christ. We have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by the faithfulness of Jesus or by faith in him. Can you feel the difference between these two? Who is the actor of our salvation? Is it us ascribing to a certain set of beliefs or is it Jesus holding faith for all of humanity? Keeping the promises that we couldn't keep. Keeping the straight line on the straight path with God versus this kind of all over the place line that we have drawn over and over again. Just a couple of more times where you show, you see it. Ephesians chapter three. This is in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through the faithfulness of him or through faith in him. And then in Philippians. Chapter three. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through the faithfulness of Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. What does it mean to say that Christ has been faithful where we could not be faithful? And what does it do to recognize that reality and try to step into it and live into it, to embrace it. That is what's happening in the wilderness. Is Jesus keeping faith with that identity that's been given to him? In a way that the people of God can't and don't over and over again keep faith with God. And we've seen it in the very beginning in the book of Genesis, where God calls these humanity forward and gives them all of these sacred tasks, and then they doubt God's goodness They doubt they're belonging to that God and they walk off the path. 
And then the whole story begins to crumble and you see God then say like, okay, it was all of humanity that belonged to me and that had this special sacred call to bear my image in the world. But in Genesis 12, it zooms in on just this one family, Abraham and Sarah and the nation that they will birth called the nation of Israel. And then this, just this one place, we will try to keep faith together. And in this way, the world will be brought to the knowledge of God and saved. Let's just try it with this one family and this one nation. But that has all of these other problems and complications. And so then in Jesus, in just this one person, just this one, we would call Messiah or anointed one. Can Jesus keep faith? Can Jesus keep the promises called upon So this is the language of faith or pistis right here. And if you want to talk about the faith in Christ option and that I'll say right now that I believe deeply that both of these are the way we should understand this phrase, that they are both at play because they're both on offer. And so it is in part our belief, our trust in Jesus. And then it is also that Jesus is trustworthy. And so we're not placing our faith in something that will fail. So the faith option, as I've come to understand it, and as often it gets taught, is um, is the language of belief, of understanding concepts, of understanding uh, doctrines, and that kind of activity exists in the brain. It's a cerebral activity. Faith in Christ. Do you believe? If you shift it over to something like faithfulness, You start to talk a little bit more about the idea of trust, if somebody is trustworthy, if you can rely on them. And that starts to have implications for like a muscular way of being in the world. It's it's a little bit, again, I'll just, I'll move to like a relationship metaphor. The difference between just believing that your partner is, uh, is faithful, right? That's only going to take you so far than if you are actually faithful to one another. I would like for you to try and tell your partner at some point, like, I just want you to believe it. I'm not going to actually practice it. All right, that's going to be a problem in terms of the promises kept. What would it mean to believe that a core part of our deliverance is that Christ has done what we could not The beginning of the story of Jesus takes place in the wild places. Retelling the story of all of the temptations present in those spaces in between. In the wilderness seasons, not understanding our identity, but Jesus keeps faith over and over again. Not only survives the encounter, but survives intact in such a way that he can begin to enact that identity. And live in to that identity. And this is what happens with those core temptations for food, for rescue, and for power. If you stay with this story through its end, you land again on the story of bread, on the story of being thrown down, and on the story of power. I just want to tell you these three as re-experienced by Christ. The, uh, the temptation that Jesus offers to Jesus, like if you were so hungry, you should turn this stones into bread and then you'll have all the food that you need. Uh, and Jesus says, like, we don't live just on bread alone, but on every word from the mouth of God. 
A little bit later in the gospel stories, there are crowds that are hungry and Jesus provides them all the bread that they need in these wilderness feedings. It uh, turns out Jesus is just fine and perfectly capable with getting the food that's needed. But the temptation is to grasp for it, for oneself. At the end of the gospel stories, Jesus gathers with a group of his friends, his disciples in an upper room. And this is right before his death, uh, tells them this story from the Passover, uh, offers them bread, and in breaking it says to them that this is my body which is broken for you. So take and eat in remembrance of me. The temptation from the evil one is for Jesus to grasp at what was freely given. And Jesus takes that temptation and in living inverts it in such a way that he offers himself as bread, as substance. That's not only resisting the evil one, it is redeeming the impulse present within that evil. Second, the devil says, stand on the pinnacle of the temple and throw yourself down, and then God will save you if you are the son of God. A little bit after the supper, Jesus finds himself lifted up outside the city walls within view of the temple. Exalted on a cross and then quite literally thrown down into the grave. And at multiple points is offered again the temptation like just call on God's power, and angels will come and take you down from this situation. But that's not the way this story is going. Jesus submits, relents in fearlessness and in love and even in forgiveness and is thrown down. It turns out that God does raise him up, does catch him. We call that Easter. It happens in a way that nobody expected. And then the third offer. Listen, if you think that you're the son of God, that's fine. But I've got a better offer for you. If you would just bow down and worship me, I will give you everything. All the splendor of the nations, all the power and authority that you could ever want could be yours. And what is the last thing that Jesus says in Matthew's gospel after the resurrection? Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, this is the last bit that's red-lettered in your New Testament, in this book of Matthew. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Turns out that fidelity to God's story, that being faithful So the promises that have been made, all authority has been given to Christ. Jesus takes all of these central temptations and redeems them, offering himself as bread, allowing himself to be thrown down into the grave, to be rescued by God in the most unexpected of ways, and then to be handed power and authority, and then hands to us the call. Now you go and make disciples of everyone. 
baptizing, teaching, preaching. Those are the last red letters in the book of Matthew, but the first ones hint at where this story is going. The first thing that Jesus says in the book of Matthew. When Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him, John would have prevented him by saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. But Jesus answers him. And this is the first phrase. Let it be so now for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. As we begin this journey of Lent together, looking at the book of Numbers, at this long journey through the wild places and all of the ways that the people keep losing faith in themselves and in their God and the identity that they've been given, we have to keep in the front of our minds that there is one who has walked this path perfectly without stumbling, without breaking faith with God. And to say that we are in Christ, that mysterious language of our own union with Jesus and Jesus' story, is to say that where we have failed, Christ has not. And when we are lost, that Christ is not. And when we don't know the way home, that Christ has already walked that path. Even and especially when we come to the place of dying, whether actual or in all the small ways that the world pulls us down. Christ has shown us how to walk that path too. Turns out it's actually better to die with God than to go back to Egypt and serve some other story. So maybe this is the first thing we do and the thing we do all throughout the season of Lent. It's what Moses tells the people to do at the edge of the sea. You bring us out here so that we would die in the wild places. We would rather go back home and serve our own old story. Don't be afraid. You are about to witness the deliverance of God. God will fight for you. All you have to do is just be still. For whatever this compact phrase of the faithfulness of Christ might mean, it at least means that we can rest in that deep reality. Christ has done the work. Sometimes we get so anxious that we don't know the next step to take. And the way is not open for us in clarity. In those moments, it has to be enough That Christ is walking with you. Is showing you the way. Christ is known to us as our brother. Friends and family at First Baptist. All of these temptations are always swirling. And some of you, just like me, all the time at different times. Believe the old script, the old tapes, the old stories about who we are. My invitation to you is to believe that Jesus has told another story in his own living that keeps faith with God, 
shows us what it looks like. Just be still and just watch what Jesus has done. And then in that, we might learn this dance that God is inviting us into. This journey that we are on toward this new creation, this new way to be, this new identity. Beloved child of God, would you pray with me? God, I confess I don't always believe in myself, believe in the things you've said about me, but I'm trying to believe in Jesus. In what has been accomplished through Jesus staying faithful to you and you staying faithful to him. And what it looks like for one person to keep humanity's side of the covenant. Open our eyes that we would see clearly the path that has been laid out before us. Expel the evil one and all the temptations present therein. Cure us from the fear of death so that we can walk where you have walked. Prepare us for the cross this season of Lent. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.